Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. If you've got friends who are not yet into the Bible, you might suggest starting a group with them. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're on the seventh week of this the story of Joseph, but with Jacob returning to Egypt, he now plays the starring role. Those previous episodes for the story of Joseph, Genesis more broadly, and other shows are available on podcast through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. On today's show, we're going to cover Genesis 48 and 49 and get into chapter 50 as well as Jacob hands out the blessings. Not the most exciting stuff, at least on the surface, but there's a lot of important stuff going on that I look forward to explaining to you. Lord, be with us today as we open up your scriptures. Help us to understand more about you and what you want from us and for us in the days to come. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 48 and 49 and into 50 today, getting towards the end of Genesis Jacob and Joseph have completed the family reunion, and although this is largely the story of Joseph, Jacob plays the starring role here as he hands out blessings in both chapters 48 and 49. We're going to start today with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours, and the territory they inherit they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So in verse 1, Jacob is ill and potentially on his deathbed. So Joseph visits with his two sons, probably to seek Jacob's blessings. He's probably looking and expecting his practical preeminence over the brothers to be ratified. And we've seen earlier evidence of this at the last of the previous chapter, when Jacob came to him about his burial at the end of chapter 47. Verse 2, Jacob here revives or rallies. And it's interesting that the text calls him again Israel. And so that's a hint that there's a national rather than individual stake in what's about to take place. This is also the only full episode with them alone together. And so we have, in in a sense, the competing worldviews in one room together, Jacob versus Joseph 
and Israel versus Egypt. Now, there are a number of strange things in the opening of this passage. For one thing, Jacob motivates it by the covenant and the promise of population and land. In verse 4, he calls it an everlasting possession, and he attributes it in verse 3 to God Almighty. That's his opening words. But this is in contrast to the property that Joseph has received through Pharaoh to give to his family in chapter 47, verse 11. The property, or literally the word is possession from Pharaoh, and Jacob seems to be contrasting that with the, the literal possession, the future possession of the promised land that God is going to give. Cass observes, Joseph is a benefactor, but only a temporary one and one inferior to God. And contrary to appearances, Egypt is not the promised land. So Jacob seems to be working on those points with Joseph and with those of us reading the text today. Verse 5, Ephraim and Manasseh will be adopted by Jacob. And this is in contrast to potential future sons that are mentioned in verse 6. So Jacob is implicitly encouraging Joseph to have more children, to be more fruitful in terms of population. But from the text, apparently that did not happen. It's also interesting that Ephraim is mentioned before Manasseh, which foreshadows the reversal of blessings that we'll read about in verses 14 and 20 in particular, that usually the older child, Manasseh, would come before the younger child, Ephraim. So what's happening here? Well, the promise that was cited in verses 3 and 4 is used to motivate the adoption and the absorption of Joseph's Egyptian-born sons into Israel. Cass observes, Joseph comes seeking a blessing on his Egyptian-born sons. Instead, he is told they are no longer his, and by implication, no longer Egyptian. Now, Joseph is not going to be entirely happy with the way this chapter unfolds, but he gives no protest on this point, which is interesting. Why is this okay with Joseph? Well, I think we have a number of possible answers here. In essence, Jacob is saying, God told me so. And Joseph has experienced the same thing in his own life. He's seen God's providence. He has not received direct communication from God, but he's seen God move. And it's not clear that he wants to argue with his dad on this point. I think we could look at the cultural norm of patriarchy, that you just give in to your father on points like this. That could easily be the case. could be that he's not all that interested in his children. He only has the two. And again, in contrast to his other brothers who are far more fruitful, we've already made the point that few kids is an Egyptian norm, and maybe he's just not all that interested in his kids compared to his work, his achievements, and the like. The most positive angle here is that Jacob is honoring Joseph with the double blessing of the inheritance by naming the two sons. In contrast to this, Judah will receive the firstborn's leadership responsibilities, what's been called the birthright. But both of these have been forfeited by Reuben and Simeon, verses 5, mention them by name. That's not an accident. We're not sure about Levi yet, but that story's coming later. But this would eventually allow the 12 tribes to have land. Joseph will be replaced by his two sons, and Levi, it turns out, will not receive land. And so there will be a total of 12 tribes, although not 12 brothers, who receive land in the promised land. As such, we also have Joseph's material and Egyptian blessing, and that's in contrast to Judah's spiritual and Israelite blessing. Matthew Henry says here, Let them not succeed their father in his power and grandeur in Egypt, but let them succeed in the inheritance of the promise made to Abraham. And Jacob here is making the first of many moves in this chapter to try and reorient Joseph and his family toward Israel. Another way to read this and similar is that Ephraim and Manasseh are taking the place of Joseph and in part 
Reuben and Simeon, who are mentioned in verse 5. In other words, the tribe of Joseph that we would expect to emerge out of this will be replaced by two tribes for his sons. Cass observes here, the name of Joseph will no longer live in Israel. Jacob here, in effect, sacrifices Joseph as his son in Israel, seeing as Joseph is already lost to Egypt, but he recovers two of his own to take Joseph's place. And then Cass makes another interesting observation, goes back to Noah, where he says, unlike Noah, who once cursed his grandson Canaan, a brother of Egypt, by the way, for the impious ways of his son Ham, Jacob does not allow Joseph's sons to be abandoned to false gods, despite Joseph's waywardness from the path of Israel. The other possible interpretation lines up with the odd mention of Rachel in verse 7. I think that seems completely unexpected, but Joseph and Rachel are both dead to him and dead to Israel in a sense, and so it's possible that Ephraim and Manasseh are taking the place of Joseph his favorite son, and Rachel, his favorite wife. Perhaps Ephraim's name reminds him of Ephrath in chapter 35, verse 19, where Rachel is buried, as he mentions that place here. And if so, we're transitioning from Joseph's fatherhood to the losses of his own fatherhood. Cass says here, perhaps Jacob is not so much wallowing in his grief as he is reminding himself and Joseph that Joseph is now lost to him in the same way that his mother Rachel was lost to him long before. Jacob's emphasis on the place of Rachel's burial suggests something much more radical. Jacob may now understand the symbolic meaning of his decision not to bury Rachel with the other patriarchs and matriarchs. Rachel's burial had left her on the outside of the new way. Now her preeminent son has chosen to assimilate himself to outside ways in Egypt. Rachel had clung to her father's idols. Joseph now clings to the land of the idolaters. Jacob sees that, like mother, like son, the beautiful Rachel and her beautiful Joseph are both detours on the way to the promise that God Almighty has made to them. You know, again, this may seem harsh to those who haven't heard me develop this thesis, largely with Cass and the other Jewish commentators. And this doesn't take away from Joseph as a great man, certainly in worldly terms, but even in religious terms. He clearly identifies with God. But there's also something missing. There's something about the level of compromise with Egypt that is troubling, particularly for a people and a nation that are called to be holy. All right, let's go to verses 8 through 12. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. Jo Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. Two interesting cultural details to start off our discussion here. The kiss in verse 10, and then verse 12, they're at his knees, presumably not on his knees, since they're 17 to 25 years old at this point. Both of these are rites of adoption in that culture. The most interesting thing, though, of this passage is the language about, you know, who are these kids? Verse 8, who, who are these children? It could just be that this is a, a formality or actually an informality in the introduction, right? You can picture a grandpa saying this in kind of a joking way. Who are these kids, right? It could also be that he has no idea who they are. Maybe they've grown up and changed a lot. You know, when kids get older in those teen years, a lot of times we don't recognize them. But we also get the impression that they haven't been visiting Grandpa very often. And of course, verse 10 also tells us that Jacob is nearly blind. 
And as we saw with Jacob and Isaac and Isaac's blindness, Jacob here is going to be purposefully redeeming the past blind blessing with his actions here. All right, it's time for a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 48 so far today, and we've reached verse 13, where Jacob is about to bless Joseph's two sons, verses 13 through 20. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased, so he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. So the blessing for Joseph in verses 15 and 16 is really a blessing for Ephraim and Manasseh more directly. In particular, verse 16 says, to increase greatly. And we need to pay a lot of attention to this moment because this is the verse that Jacob receives in the great Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Why does the writer of Hebrews bring up this verse among all the potential stories that one could tell about Jacob. What's happening here? So the emphasis on the kids and his desire for them to increase greatly takes us back to population and prosperity in God's kingdom and its terms. He's emphasizing Joseph's legacy. Did Joseph want kids that much? Might he have more kids in the future? He enhances Joseph's legacy. Instead of one son being blessed, it's both. And it also changes his legacy through this act of adoption by moving the sons from Joseph's family to his own. He also identifies God as the God of Abraham and Isaac, his shepherd, and the angel who delivered him. Interesting set of references here may indicate his journey or progression through life. Maybe it's a sort of trinity here. It'd be a little bit of a stretch, but he does mention three, and one could make connections between shepherd and angel to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but anyway, interesting, and trying to root Joseph in a Israelite God of Israel viewpoint uh, as he lays out this blessing, and the sons as well. Now, obviously, the most important part of the passage is this arm-crossing right-left business, that Jacob changes the blessing order. Now, keep in mind, culturally, the right hand was for the stronger blessings. Arabs today don't do anything with their left hand except dirty stuff. 
So the right hand is seen as preeminent. Now, Joseph is displeased with that in verses 17 and 18, even to the point of trying to switch his father's hands. Seems like a galling move by Joseph here. Verse 19, Jacob stands up to that and refuses it. But he also seems to understand. Twice he says, I know. And I think we see in this a quiet confidence. He's not being stubborn. He just understands this is the way it's supposed to go. So what's happening here? First of all, Joseph thought he knew how God would work, which is ironic since he knew God moved in unconventional ways as in his life. Why would he be stuck on the regular ways when that's clearly not how God has moved in Joseph's life? Jacob's perspective is interesting here as well. He can't see and he doesn't recognize, so that makes clear this is not about favoritism. It does parallel with a bias against the firstborn as he himself had received the blessing instead of Esau, And Jacob ultimately here is deciding in favor of the pattern laid out by God, as we've seen throughout Genesis with Abel and Cain, with Shem and Japheth, with Abraham rather than Nahor and Haran, with Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, Judah and Joseph instead of Reuben. We'll see it again with Moses and Aaron in the book of Exodus. And ultimately, this is most fulfilled in the Old and the New Covenant. What comes first is not the most important in God's economy. It's what comes second many times. Now, this is contrary to culture and tradition, which elevates the first over the second, but that is not consistent with God's ways, and Jacob gets in line with that. Why else is this important? Well, choosing the oldest would also imply that things are solid and that the perpetuation of the current state of affairs is desirable. And that is Joseph's view. But again, that is not Jacob's view. Cass says here, Israel's rejection of both Joseph's offer to Egyptianize and his complacent belief that the new way was finally secure. In all of this, Jacob might be physically blind, but he's not spiritually blind. He's going the right direction here. Now, from Joseph's perspective, Jonathan Sachs makes a couple of really interesting observations here. First, he notes that Joseph has some reasonable concerns here to see things being reversed. Sachs writes, It is not difficult to understand the care Joseph took to ensure that Jacob would bless the firstborn first. Three times throughout his life, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and Benjamin over the ten sons, his father had set the younger before the elder, and each time it had resulted in tragedy. The consequences were catastrophic, estrangement from Esau, tension between the two sisters, and hostility among his sons. Joseph himself bore the scars. And so from that angle, you know, it may not be Joseph uh, appealing to culture and tradition, but seeing what elevating the younger son had done in family history. But Sachs also makes a really interesting point about Jacob and says that he may infer or find signal value in the names of Manasseh and Ephraim. If we look, think back to how they were named, Manasseh means wanting to forget his household, while Ephraim means seeing Egypt as affliction and exile. Sachs writes here, on this reading, Jacob's blessing had nothing to do with their ages and everything to do with their names. Jacob sought to signal to all future generations that there would be a constant tension between the desire to forget, to assimilate and anesthetize the hope of return, and the promptings of memory, the knowledge that this is exile, that we are part of another story, that our ultimate home is somewhere else. The child of forgetting, that's Manasseh, may have blessings, but greater are the blessings of a child, Ephraim, who remembers the past and future of which he is a part. So verse 20, Jacob says, hey, they're both going to be great, but Ephraim will be greater. Manasseh will be large, but he'll be divided by the Jordan River into half tribes, 
And when the kingdom splits, Ephraim will be the most powerful northern tribe, usually referred to as Israel. And the northern kingdom is often referred to as Ephraim, most notably in Hosea's prophecy. This happens 36 times. A great passage on this is Hosea 11, 1 through 4. Both had prominent leaders later, but it's Ephraim's descendants, which include the luminary Joshua. There's nothing recorded in the text, but one wonders how Manasseh felt about great versus greater. He has received tremendous blessing. Was he able to be thankful for this despite that Ephraim was receiving even more? And then finally, just a reminder of the bigger point that Ephraim and Manasseh are replacing Joseph, which includes the future double material blessing of verse 20. And it's in contrast to the spiritual birthright blessing that will go to Judah and his descendants. Verses 21 and 22, then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Verse 21 says, look to the future, think about the land, the promised land, and look to God. Verse 22, there's a reference to Amorite land taken by sword. We're not quite sure what this means. It could be a reference to chapter 34 with the Shechemites. In any case, this is land that now belongs to the Canaanites now that they've left for Egypt. And so again, this is an allusion to the promises that God has made about the promised land. Verse 22 opens with, as one who's over your brothers. So we're back to the dream of chapter 37 being revisited and acknowledged. The most interesting phrase here is hard to translate. The NIV renders it, I give the ridge of land, but it can be also translated, I give you one more portion than your brothers. And the word portion here, also really intriguing, is literally the word Shechem. So portion and Shechem also mean the word shoulder. And so you have, in essence, two sons, two portions of land, the double material blessing that we've talked about, laying on two shoulders of the sons. But of course, Shechem is also quite likely a reference to the name of the city that was such a big deal in chapter 34. It's also the case, if you have a really good memory, that Shechem is where Joseph is mishandled by his brothers back in chapter 37, verse 13. And so maybe Jacob knows that, those details of the story at this point, and is recognizing that Shechem is a catalyst for all that follows in Joseph's life. It's also really interesting, looking forward, that Shechem's where Joseph is going to have his final resting place. We learn that in Joshua 24, verse 32. From a literary perspective, it's kind of difficult to know what to do with Shechem. Shechem's certainly a troubling and ominous reference, again, given what happened in chapter 34, but maybe we're supposed to read this as a sign and hope of redemption of this troubled place. So that takes us to chapter 49. Chapter 48 was the blessings for Ephraim and Manasseh, and that seems to be a catalyst for, at least in literary terms, chapter 49, which is a blessing for all of Jacob's sons. If we think back to Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, we might forget that Ishmael and Esau also received their blessings. And so all of Jacob's sons will receive blessings as well. Let's read the introduction to this blessing chapter, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. The first thing to note here is this chapter is the longest poem in Genesis, with many words not used elsewhere in the Bible. So there are some difficulties in translating it. Fortunately, there's not anything of any significant doctrinal importance or the like. So whatever struggles we have here, we can make note of them and move on pretty quickly. Again, he does bless all 12 sons. 
Another reference to this late is in Revelation 21, 12, when the 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, it's practical to tell all of them together. And this is alluding to the multiplication of Israel, or Jacob, that will follow. It's also interesting that they are to be united. And that's important because we've seen a lot of division throughout Genesis. This is a hopeful ending to the book of Genesis that sibling rivalry has been resolved. And we find a picture of decent unity here at the end. Now, that said, there are still some important differences. The ordering is presented by wife, except the maidservant's sons, which are jumbled in the middle of Leah and Rachel's sons. And the blessings are not nearly all equal, even in terms of quantity. There's a big focus on Judah. He gets five verses and 17 statements. Joseph receives five verses and 19 statements. And later, the dominant southern and northern tribes right, get those massive blessings, almost as much combined as the other sons, which receive 10 verses and 38 statements. Now, blessings are strange to us, but biblically and in that culture, it's a combination of prophetic speech and an analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of his children. Cass says what follows is part blessing, part prophecy, part settling of scores, and part redirection of future family and tribal relations. Marianne Robinson in her novel Gilead observes, it is not Adam but the Lord who rebukes Cain. Eli never rebukes his sons or Samuel his. David never rebukes Absalom. At the very end, Jacob does rebuke his sons as he blesses them. And so credit where credit's due among the biblical characters, among fathers, Jacob is the one who has the courage and the wisdom to lay out some rebuke within these blessings. Now, again, what do we do with this? It's not predestination, but the past does shape, not fully determined, but does shape the future. And Jacob is acknowledging that. The last thing I think we'll see as we go through the blessings is that the material blessings and the difficulties presented are in a matter-of-fact tone. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture that sees circumstances as neutral and secondary to character and what we do with our circumstances. And so Jacob is in line with God's kingdom perspective about the relationship of circumstance and character. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 48 and into Genesis 50 today. First two segments, we covered Genesis 48 and the blessing of Jacob to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And at the end of the last segment, we introduced the blessing to the other sons in chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. So let's start with verses 3 and 4, first son Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Ouch is the word that comes to mind for me, and it's really sobering to think that it's possible that this episode hadn't even been mentioned publicly until this moment. Imagine that and what a jaw-dropping statement this would have been in this, at this point. The blessing opens in a promising manner, the terrific praise of verse 3, but basically Reuben didn't live up to the promise. He's called turbulent, which is good news, bad news. He's got a lot of passion, but it implies he's unstable. The comparison to water is interesting. Matthew Henry notes that water fits any container. And so it's not someone who takes great stands. So you're passionate, but you go anywhere the wind blows, basically, is a picture we're given. Of course, the punchline here is the defiling 
of Jacob's bed by sleeping with the maidservant Bilhah. And this is back in chapter 35, verse 22. He's still a son, but he lost the firstborn leadership to Judah. And of course, we've seen it play out in this generation as well, as Reuben is a tryhard who is unable to lead his brothers for whatever reason, and Judah easily supplants him as the story continues. Looking forward, none from this tribe are mentioned later in the Bible except Dathan and Abiram, who lead a rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16, so that's not good, and general tribal indecisiveness in Deborah's victorious poem in Judges 5, verses 15 and 16. This tribe later chose land on the east side of the Jordan, which was more fertile, but more vulnerable to attack, and so they fade into history. The other sobering thing is this event occurred more than 40 years earlier. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33 says, But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself, blows in disgrace or his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. And that's what's happened to Reuben here. Matthew Henry has some great lines here. He says, As time will not of itself wear off the guilt of any sin from the conscience, so there are some sins whose stains it will not wipe off from the good name. Matthew Henry again, Those that throw away their virtue must not expect to save their reputation. And man, what a great thing to hear from Dad. This may be Jacob's last words to him. and What a terrible, sober way for it to end for Reuben. Matthew Henry, one more time, let us never do evil, and then we need not fear being told of it. All right, verses 5 through 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel." So Simeon and Levi are blessed together, so to speak, as they had acted together in chapter 34's key moment at Shechem. Verse 5, the swords of violence. Verse 6, the anger. Verse 6 continues, as they pleased. And this is offense, not defense. As Matthew Henry notes, this is to do wrong to others, not to save themselves from wrong. There's a time for violence and self-defense at times, but that's not what this was about. Verse 7, Jacob curses their anger and so on and so forth. He doesn't curse them, but he curses the sin rather than the sinner. And the prophecy here is that they would be scattered and dispersed, and that's the way it's going to turn out. Simeon is later absorbed into Judah. We see evidence of this in Joshua 19.1. He's absent in the roll calls of Judges 5 and Deuteronomy 33. Levi's in a similar spot, but it's a story for a different day. The curse is reversed and turns into a blessing with some later events. They would not receive land, but they did get to be priests. We read about this in Joshua 21. It's most likely because of the sin of Zimri, who turns out to be from the tribe of Simeon, and the execution by Phinehas, who's in the tribe of Levi, in another critical story in Numbers 21, 1 through 14. Levi also exemplifies justice, righteousness, etc., zeal for the Lord in their response to the golden calf in Exodus 34. Cass says the zeal shown in the avenging of Dinah, once properly domesticated and subordinated to a higher service, has a crucial part to play in the life of Israel, indeed of any nation. And so Levi will ultimately get to redeem this uh, semi-blessing or curse that Jacob hands down at this point. And again, remember, Simeon still has choices to make. This is not predestination. They still have free will. 
So in essence, we've seen through verse 7 that Jacob is ripping his first three sons and pointing out that they're incapable of leading, which sets the table for Judah's leadership as the fourth son and the double blessing and the financial stewardship blessings that go to Joseph. Verses 8 through 12, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So verse 8 makes explicit that Judah will rule. The attributes of Reuben in verse 3 go to Judah now as the leader. Now Judah's already been leading, as opposed to Reuben, and his tribe would lead the southern kingdom when it split. Looking forward, it's interesting in Joshua 15 through 17 that the western land is given to Judah and Ephraim Manasseh first, but Joshua has to go the other seven tribes into appropriating their land. So it's Judah and Ephraim, the ones that are blessed most strongly here, that turn out in history to be the ones that have no trouble appropriating what God has given them in the promised land. And verse 8, later they're going to lead successfully into the promised land battles. We see this in Judges 1, 1 and 2 bunch of cool references the rest of the way the lion of judah which foreshadows david and christ also a reference to revelation 5 5 matthew henry says thus dying jacob at a great distance saw christ day and there are other messianic references here in verses 10 through 12 the scepter and staff of verse 10 the wealth of verse 11 the beauty and charisma of verse 12 Verses 13 through 17, Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. Verse 13, a cool detail here that Zebulun's coastal territory will later be chosen by Lot, seemingly random, but a sign of God's providence. We read this in Joshua 19.11. Matthew Henry observes the land was divinely dispensed, and here Jacob was divinely inspired. 14 and 15, Issachar has tillage, tributes, and taxes, farming and forced labor. And then 16 and 17, the reference to Dan, his name means justice. And most prominently, it's going to be Samson who will represent that in the book of Judges. 17 is an interesting reference to a serpent or viper biting a horse's heels. Again, this could be a reference to Samson with the Philistines, or perhaps the nasty story in Judges 18, verse 30. And of course, this reference also reminds us of something much earlier in Genesis, the first messianic reference in Genesis 3.15 of the serpent biting at our heels. Verse 18 is an intermission of sorts. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. So this is halfway through the less historically important six sons of the maidservants, and it's a focus on God's deliverance and their dependence before he gets back to the blessings of verses 19 through 21. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. 
Verse 19, Gad's name means attack, so that's a good reference here. It's one of the eastern tribes. They would help David with Saul, 1 Chronicles 12.8, but they'd also be vulnerable to the Moabites and the Ammonites to the south. Asher had tremendous wealth. There's a reference to that here in verse 20. And in verse 21, Naphtali is isolated in the northern country, and they fostered an independent spirit there, which seems to be prophesied by what Jacob says here in verse 21. And that takes us to 22 through 26 for Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady, his strong arm stayed limber, because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers." So this is the other lengthy and loaded blessing along with Judah. Verse 22 mentions the word fruitful twice. Again, this connects to the financial stewardship blessings, the double blessings, material, physical blessings that Joseph would receive. Of course, this is Ephraim's name, which means fruitful. And remember that Ephraim is greater than Manasseh in the blessings of chapter 48. Verse 25 mentions fertility of soil, man, and animals. But Jacob is also working really hard to connect this to the providences and the protections and the provision of God, including the Rock of Israel reference in verse 24, which is a phrase used throughout Deuteronomy 32, Psalms, and Isaiah. Verse 26 culminates in just tremendous blessing. You'll notice the word blessing appears six times in this passage, supremacy later in Israel's history as well. Verse 22, a vine whose branches climb over a wall indicates Ephraim's tendency especially to expand their territory. We see that in Joshua 17 verses 14 and 18. And if we look forward in Israel's history, we know that Ephraim and Manasseh both produce a number of notable leaders. From Ephraim, we have Joshua, Deborah, Samuel, and Jeroboam. From Manasseh, we have Gideon and Jephthah. And so this tribe was loaded both in terms of prosperity and leadership. Verses 23 and 24, we see Joseph as a type of Christ, persecuted but still triumphant. He's a type of the church. Satan shoots his fiery darts, but we overcome. And he deals with bitterness from his brothers in the past and now a series of enemies. But all of this is more natural than political, fertility and plenty, rather than an emphasis on leading and ruling. There would be some of that as well, as often is the case for the wealthy and the powerful. Cass says, Joseph, master of the fertile place, gets the natural blessing. Judah, leader of his brothers, gets the national blessing. Joseph, it appears, had only half understood his youthful Egyptian dream about the sheaves of wheat. His brothers did indeed bow down to him, but only in Egypt, in Israel, the brothers, including Joseph's sons, will be led by Judah. And then Cass makes, I think, a very powerful observation here that Jacob, at the end of his life, like his father Isaac, confesses his error regarding his sons. But unlike Isaac, Jacob does so in public before all his sons. And then finally, verses 27 and 28, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So verse 27, Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. That's a long way from the manipulated, beloved baby brother we last saw in the text. 
Must have been the prophecy, or he would have spoken more kindly about one of his favorite sons. Now, in history, we've got the second judge, who's Ehud, coming out of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king as well, Saul, and later it'll be Mordecai and Esther and the apostle Paul. Verse 28's conclusion reiterates that all are blessed, none are disinherited, as we saw with Ishmael and Esau. And I'll let the last word be from J. Vernon McGee on this, who notes that Jacob is all business here. He says, a grandpa is inclined to boast just a little, but old Jacob didn't tell his grandsons how smart he was or how clever he was, how he put it over Esau or how he put it over his father-in-law Laban. This is what he did say, may the Lord who kept me from evil keep the lads. And this is the bottom line. It's not about Jacob. Jacob's looking forward to the future. He's depending on God. He's looking forward to the promises of God being fulfilled in the lives of his descendants. Let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 48 and into 50 today. First two segments, we talked about Genesis 48 and the complicated but important blessing of Jacob to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In the last segment, we covered the blessings to the other 10 sons in Genesis 49. And so we have to pick things up in verse 29 of 49, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried, there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So in verse 33, he dies. The wording used here is gathered to his people, same language as, as used with Abraham and Isaac. It's a euphemism for death, so death's not being mentioned directly. And other language would be died full of years or at a good old age. We see that language back in 47 verse 9. But it's appropriate that Jacob is not connected directly with death. As P.H. Reardon puts it, Jacob was Israel and Israel still lived. And so, in a sense, Jacob the individual is gone, but Jacob as Israel will continue to grow and expand and is quite alive. Verses 29 through 32, the rest of the passage, gives instructions to all the sons about burial. Now, remember that Joseph had received instructions back in chapter 47, verses 27 through 31, as a separate matter. But this underlines its importance. He's not just leaving it to Joseph. It's something he wants conveyed to all the sons, a return to Canaan, is vital for the future of the family and the country. Verse 32 mentions Leah, and she's not explicitly identified as his wife, but the most important thing is he is buried with her, not Rachel. Rachel is the favored wife, but Leah long-term is the wife that is associated with the patriarchs and with Jacob's death and burial and the promised land. The other thing to say about this is the application we can make to funeral arrangements broadly. And as with us, if we make the arrangements ahead of time, it can avoid costs and contention. As Leon Cass notes, this is a masterful combination of practical geographical direction, legal instruction, and pious inspiration, a reminder of why they do these things. 
And it's also interesting that there are twofold instructions, the ones to Joseph and the ones to the brothers, and that parallels what's going to happen in the funeral itself, that there's both an Egyptian part that's engineered by Joseph and an Israelite part that is run by all of the brothers. All right, let's move into verses 1 through 3 of chapter 50. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. The first thing is the weeping of Joseph in verse 1. And this is all despite the fact that Jacob is clearly ready to go physically and spiritually. And I think we can draw application to this to our grieving as well. Just because someone passes, just because we have warning, just because they've lived a full life, just because it's time to move on to the next life, it doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt. And so the grieving of Joseph is representative of the pain we always feel when a loved one departs from us. But Joseph seems alone in the extent of the mourning, which seems strange. Cass says Joseph alone among the brothers seems utterly unprepared for his father's death. Now, that could be a number of reasons for this. Could be Joseph loved him more. And we might think about the favoritism that Jacob had shown toward Joseph over the other brothers. But remember Judah's speech back in chapter 44 and how much he loved his father as well. So I don't think that's a, a great explanation. We've seen that Joseph is relatively quick to cry. We saw that as the drama was unfolding uh, back in the middle of this narrative. It could be that he's experienced more losses. He's certainly gone through more pain in his life, and so maybe he's quicker to cry and to experience and express grief for that reason. Or perhaps as a religious matter, and this goes back to the Egyptian versus Israelite perspective, maybe he's just less accepting of death. And we see this all the time in people as well. If they're not comfortable with the next stage of life, Uh, If they're not as accepting of death itself, then it's a a much more painful thing to go through. So any of these, I think, or all of them actually, are possible for explaining the extent of Joseph's grief. Now, verses 2 and 3 talks about 40 days to embalm. This is consistent with Egyptian tradition and custom, and it's to ward off death for other people. And here it's pretty important given the long trip that's going to be made with Jacob's body. These are the only examples of embalming in the scriptures, and typically this is a pagan religious sort of practice, but it's not necessarily meant that way here. And this is interesting, I think, as well, that Israel is able to accept this on behalf of the pagans as a gift, and it's not problematic for them religiously. And so they accept the strange practice uh, as okay for them in this moment. Embalming also would require the removal of the organs, and so there might be some light applications to the practice of organ donation or even to cremation here. Uh, A lot of times people are wary of messing with the body, and that's reasonable, but think about the martyrs of the faith. And really, when you've been burned at the stake, for example, you're just getting back to dust a little bit quicker. God can do what he wants to resurrect our bodies. Verse 3 ends with 70 days to mourn. Of course, 70 would be biblically important. It turns out as well that Egyptians would mourn 72 days for pharaohs. So this is great respect for Joseph and for Jacob with a mourning period of this length. We had part of this discussion last week when Joseph was given the instructions from Jacob. And I think at one level, we're tempted to imagine that it doesn't matter how burials go. It's just bones. It's just a body. 
But it's also indicative of how we care for the dead, that it relates to how we care for the living in general and for that person while they're living. There's just something that doesn't seem right about mistreating a body after it's dead when we would never have done that to the person when they were living. So in one sense, it doesn't matter. In another sense, it does seem to matter, and it probably does at some deeper level. All right, verses 4 through 14. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with them to bury his father. As a broad comment, the first thing to note here is that there's so much text devoted to this. I mean, if you think about the sparse narrative we've seen often in Genesis where we're begging for more details, here we get 14 verses devoted to not really what seems to be that important, Jacob's death and his funeral. Think about all the others who've died in Genesis and they only get a verse, if that. So something else is going on here. What are we supposed to see in God's purposeful writing of the scriptures through Moses to give us a narrative of this length? So we start back with the request in verses 4 and 5, as per his father's wishes, and the ascent in verse 6, based in part on his oath, which again was back in chapter 47. It's interesting, a little detail, verse 4, he takes an indirect approach here. He has other people approach Pharaoh. It could be that he's not as close to Pharaoh as previously. One wonders if things are already changing for Israel. Verses 7 through 9 indicate that the relationship is still strong, at least relatively strong, but maybe there's some foreshadowing here in his in his inability to approach Pharaoh directly or unwillingness to approach him directly. In terms of the rhetoric, it's interesting that in his approach to Pharaoh, he leaves some things out. He omits Jacob's reference to not in Egypt, the mention of the cave, the ownership of the land in Canaan. He makes it personal. He adds that a tomb was dug, and he doesn't really give cultural or religious reasons. So it seems like Joseph is being careful in how he makes his case to Pharaoh. And most important, he promises that he will return, which of course is of great interest to Pharaoh. Cass says he's struck by the contrast between Joseph's timid, let me go up and I'll be back, and that of the next Israelite who stands before Pharaoh, Moses' bold demand to let my people go. Right, where Joseph is tentative and careful, Moses will be much more bold in the next book. 
Verses 7 through 9, the trip to Canaan goes forward with Pharaoh's officials, other important Egyptians, and Jacob's family. This is a great honor. I think this is interesting in light of how the Egyptians despised the Israelites. We saw this a couple of times, for example, in chapter 43, verse 32, that the officials go with them despite not being fans of the Israelites in general. But notice in verse 8, they don't bring the kids or the flocks. For one thing, bringing the kids and all those animals would have been practically difficult. Imagine all those kids saying, are we there yet? And it's also sensitive to Pharaoh, making clear that Egypt is their home, at least for now. You know, it sends a very different message if you bring the kids and the flocks. This may also be part of the reason for the entourage that accompanies Joseph in verses 7 and 9. Maybe they're meant, uh, at least implicitly, to encourage Joseph to return. For Joseph, this is the first time he's been home in about 40 years and the last time he'll be there. But again, in a very interesting little note in the text here, verses 10 and 11, twice it mentions that he went near the Jordan. This is literally beyond the Jordan, which means that they were approaching from the east. Now, this is really interesting, right? They're taking an indirect, circuitous trip rather than just going northeast for a straight shot. Now, for the reader looking forward to Exodus, we'll note that this is similar to what Israel will later do in the wilderness. So there's maybe some foreshadowing here. But it's also, I think, important that they're avoiding the promised land to a large extent. They're in the promised land as little as possible. They're not in the Negev. They don't go through Beersheba. They're spending as little time in the promised land as possible. And this is Joseph's choice. So it's odd and interesting that he chooses to limit his exposure to the promised land with his route. Verses 10 and 11, the seven days of mourning, a loud and bitter lament. Probably weird and maybe even troubling to the Canaanites to see this response that they attribute wrongly to the Egyptians. And then verses 12 through 14, the Israelite flavor of the funeral procession gets rolling at this point. The second half of the funeral narrative, Cass says the funeral is thus a mixture. Its grand and noble Egyptian beginning gives way to the plain and austere Israelite journey to the cave. Verse 13 underlines his exact obedience in the land of Canaan, in the burial, and burying him with the patriarchs rather than his favored wife. Another small detail, but notice that it says Jacob's sons in verse 12, and then Joseph is set apart from them in the return to Egypt of verse 14. They're together in Israel, but Joseph is set apart as they return to Egypt. Verse 13, they put the body on their shoulders, and that's different than the chariots that had carried Jacob's body in verse 9. Cass says he gets goosebumps trying to imagine the Israelite portion of the funeral with each brother carrying and sharing his load all equally the sons of Israel. He says they have gates hampered as if by Jacob's limp, and they would see that progress can be made together. What a moving moment this would have been. Cass also wonders what Joseph is thinking. He says it would be very surprising if this journey did not stir Joseph's soul most of all. Am I the Egyptian viceroy in the chariot, or am I the dutiful son of the Israelite ancestors? Difficult moment for Joseph. If I were preaching on this, I'd probably spend some time on applying this to funerals, our opportunity to mourn, our opportunity to give and receive comfort, the opportunity to grieve our loss while celebrating a life, to honestly and positively remember 
and give authentic thanks for those who have passed and ultimately our opportunity to testify to our hope in Jesus. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Lord, we thank you for this passage. May we be comforted as people leave us to move to the next life, to be comforted in our grieving and our celebration of the lives of those we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to be with you today, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.